0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham wrapped up, and the Kiwi contingent headed home with a record number of medals, pumped up by a bit of patriotism from our media.
0: Whoa, another one! It's another, so one another one. Totally.
1: Aaron Gates, three medals out the gate. But did we really punch above our weight in a tournament one critic called the two-dollar shop Olympics? Also this week, one MP's behaviour from years gone by came back to haunt him in a big way this week, adding to the chaos captured in a new book, lifting the lid on the National Party's struggles in opposition since 2017. This week, MediaWatch asks a former political reporter who dug deep into Labour's years in the wilderness, what do we actually learn from such intense retrospective political postmortems like these? And is the political reporter's focus on political missteps just getting too intense these days? But first, even before the Sam Uffendell scandal piled pressure on the current National Party leader this week, the media were already making a mountain out of some minor missteps that most people couldn't care less about. Good to chat to you, mate. How are
0: you? Kia ora, Thanks for the weekly therapy session. (laughs) Um... Kia
1: ora, mate. That was Jason Pine, the host of Sunday Sport on News Talk ZB, taking one of many calls that day from all blacks fans, gutted by yet another beating in the early hours of that morning, and the prospect of another one to come this weekend. And for some it really was therapeutic to unload on air to Piney, but some were just a little bit whiny. Yeah,
0: Piney. Frustrated, confused, peeved off, but I suppose that's a fact of life. Two yeah. hours wasted two hours wasted sleep. <laughs> Off, uh, should be on a plane right now coming home or oh, actually no don't send them home send them somewhere else who cares about them
1: and mark was just one of many calling for the head of coach ian foster
0: he certainly hasn't got the credential to be CEO of a national side i'll catch you next week piney goodbye
1: goodbye mark thanks for calling uh, nice and succinct from you But while Mark kept his gripes short, the next day, the New Zealand Herald ran not one, but two editorials demanding Ian Foster's sacking. One of them filled the entire front page, and they noticed that in Ireland. The the media
0: are on their back, so their media kind of come in, row in behind them generally, and are almost like an arm of the All Blacks. But the the front page of the New Zealand Herald did a front page editorial this week calling for Ian Foster to go. So you know they're kind of... They're not just, they're panicking,
1: there's a bit of self-hatred coming in, there's like call for massive changes, uh,
0: for the captain to be dropped. You know, everything's on the table at the moment.
1: That was rugby analyst Simon Hick from Ireland's Second Captain's podcast. And on the same podcast, former Irish international Shane Horgan compared the all-black coaches to the crew that abandoned that sinking Italian cruise ship a while back. Maybe the coach had to walk, but like it did bring back memories of, you know... Remember that um, the Italian captain of the Costa Concordia, you know, where he jumped off and left everyone else behind. He was the first off the boat. I'm all right, Jack. We're throwing these guys uh, overboard. And if you thought that was a bit over the top, the second editorial inside Monday's New Zealand Herald compared New Zealand rugby's management of the All Blacks to Richard Nixon's handling of Watergate. And if that seemed a bit out of proportion... They didn't much mind in Dublin.
0: Is anyone feeling sorry for the All Blacks?
1: (laughs) No, no. no. Come back to me in 111 years, (laughs) because that's how long we went, getting beaten down by those guys. Did they show us any sympathy? No. Now, the old, much debated maxim says sport and politics don't mix. But last Sunday, some in the media were comparing Ian Foster's plight with that of another under fire national leader. For example, Francesca Rudkin pivoted like Aaron Smith at the base of the scrum for her News Talk ZB show Sunday Cafe, like this. Ben, somebody else whose performance has come into question a little bit over the last couple of weeks is Chris Luxon, and of course the National Party is currently uh, having its conference in AGM in Christchurch as we. West- Speak. But outside that National Party conference last weekend, Christopher Luxon confidently told reporters his renewed National Party was leaving its baggage behind after a period of dysfunction.
0: We've renewed our parliamentary caucus, the caucus is ensemble. The party's in great shape, as you've seen, with respect to the enthusiasm of our members, new money and donors coming in and supporting us. And we've also been able to attract good staff as well. So I think we're in great shape going into 2023. Well, we the All right, guys, I better go to the AGM. And at that AGM, the party
1: picked a new president while the Q&A show was on. On TVNZ1. Sylvia Wood, she's taking over from Peter Goodfellow, who's been in the role uh, for 13 years as party president. And yesterday, uh, your previous guest, Sir John Key, and others sort of beamed in via video link, praising him for his work in this role. But he has increasingly become quite a controversial figure. And that's after the catastrophic defeat that National suffered in 2020, where they didn't really raise enough money,
0: but also um, they had that just horrendous ability to sort of bring in misfits and deviants in as candidates and MPs through their candidate selection process, which the board oversees.
1: But little did TVNZ's Benedict Collins know that the next instalment in that particular story was only a day away when Stuff reporter Kirsty Johnston broke the news that the party's newest MP, Sam Uffindell, had assaulted a fellow pupil back in his school days. Now it turned out that the National Party's top tier didn't know about that skeleton in Sam Uffendel's boarding school closet either because the panel that picked him for Tauranga didn't pass it on and among them was the brand new party president Sylvia Wood who was confronted outside Parliament about that by TVNZ's Mikey Sherman. Hi Sylvia. Hello. Did you know you were part of the selection process for Sam and weren't you? Did you make a mistake by not informing the leaders about that? Could we please get a comment from you? Why won't you talk to us today? Now, the reason Sylvia Wood didn't stop and chat wasn't just the bucketing rain and howling southerly whipping the parliamentary forecourt. She is an experienced HR professional, and allegations against Sam Uffendale were about to be investigated by Maria Dew QC, the lawyer who reviewed the workplace culture of the scandal-hit broadcasting company MediaWorks just last year. Now, there was obvious public interest in the truth about all this but also a moral question for the media. Is it really fair to reveal the politically damaging teenage misdemeanours of someone who's now pushing 40? Well, that became a less vexed question when RNZ on Wednesday revealed further allegations of out-of-control menacing conduct when Sam Affendel was pushing 20 at Otago University, allegations which also came as news to his new boss Christopher Luxon, but were denied by Sam Affendel himself. Now, the response to that from many of the opinion minions in the media ranged from heads must roll to boys will be boys. Hayden Donnell looked at that in Midweek Media Watch earlier this week and also had some new portrayals of exactly what still goes on around North Dunedin's notorious student flats. A bit
0: of DMV, bit of fun, yeah, I don't know what else. Basically, if you dance to the bass enough, you forget about your childhood trauma
1: for a little bit, and that's just a beautiful thing. I kind of go somewhere like...
0: Yes,
1: yes, 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 yes. If you missed it, Midweek Media Watch is available on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed. But even before the Sam Uffendel scandal raised awkward and unwanted questions for his party leader, Christopher Luxon's leadership was being questioned by some in the media, because of what now seem like pretty minor missteps. And some of them were mentioned by a News Hub reporter Amelia Wade on day one of that National Party conference last weekend. Christopher Luxon will have needed this week is to get some runs on the board. It's been a bruising couple of weeks for him, with his typically holiday headache and the confusion around his tax cuts. So what he needed to do today was to show the 700-odd uh, National Party rank and file here today that the ship is in good shape. Amelia Wade went on to say Christopher Luxon more or less did that at the stage-managed bits of that event, but some commentators were claiming that those gaffes and others meant that the National Party, a bit like New Zealand rugby, might just have picked the wrong leader for its pack. And some pundits even went on to claim, while naming no names, that some in the National Party were sounding out Deputy Nicola Willis as a Razor Robertson-style replacement for 2023. Now, in his weekly column, former Herald editor Gavin Ellis reckoned that our political reporters would even be jealous of the heads must roll momentum that sports journalists have been able to generate lately over Ian Foster. But while the media wolf pack smelled blood, he said, Its sense of smell is not so well developed that it can differentiate between a mortal wound, a non life threatening gash, and a paper cut. And while Ian Foster had inflamed rugby reporters by claiming that last weekend's mauling in Mbombella was actually the All Blacks' best performance of the year, Christopher Luxon really could claim that he'd led his party's best performance yet since it went into opposition in 2017. Writing for The Guardian, former stuffed political reporter Henry Cook said that Luxon's recent flubs and gaffes were really no big deal set against the changes that he'd overseen in-house. The party is polling at almost twice what his predecessor managed and raking in donations. His parliamentary office is well run, despite the straitened resources of an opposition this small, a crucial factor in making the media take you seriously. Now, whether the media taking Christopher Luxon seriously is significant for the rest of us is another matter, though last week reporters were even making fun of Christopher Luxon over this.
0: It sums up how New Zealanders are feeling across this country. Got bills. I've got to pay, so I'm going to work, work, work every day.
1: And just for candidly engaging the media by singing a bit of Lunch Money Lewis, Christopher Luxon was punished with mocking comparisons to the mockumentary manager and would be muso of The Office, David Brent, who famously claimed to be both a chilled out entertainer and a boss. Yeah, that was terrible. Oh, <laughs> well, that's um, it, You should have stayed in your lane. <laughs> he should have stayed in his lane on that one. What about the. What about the That was NZME business editor Fran O'Sullivan on News Hub Nation last weekend. Now, Luxon's singing may not have been a great look for someone who wants the highest office in the land, but obviously it's not a serious matter. Though Fran O'Sullivan was serious when she added this. Has he had missteps with Tapuki, confusion over tax? Yeah, look, I mean, there's been a range of things, and I, I just think the discipline uh, needs to be there. I do not know who advises Chris Luxon and who he actually listens to. Um, Christopher needs to listen a bit. He is quite impulsive in what he says. Now, in the past, some opposition leaders have suffered from taking too much notice of what their spin doctors told them to say and do. We'll get into that a little later in this programme. But writing for Newsroom this week, veteran side-switching Cabinet Minister Peter Dunn said this, with reference to Luxon's now notorious Te Hawaiian holiday. In today's politics, perceptions over substance are all that matters. It is why the Prime Minister can get away with empathetic sadness about the numbers of people sleeping in cars, but Luxon now risks being backed into a corner by
0: that social media embarrassment. He quickly needs to find issues he can get alongside New Zealanders on and be seen to be backing them.
1: But it was already too late for that, according to Matthew Houghton, former adviser to previous National Party leader Todd Muller. In his weekly New Zealand Herald column last week, he said we were past peak Luxon popularity already, and the polls showed that 150,000 people who once previously preferred national had, in Matthew Houghton's words, headed home to the comfort and safety of Ardern for the winter, even though Ardern's government, he reckoned, couldn't run a bath. But one National Party leader that lots of voters backed in the three elections in a row was John Key. And on TVNZ's Q&A last weekend, John Key had no such reservations about Christopher Luxon when he was asked for his marks out of 10 so far. Yeah, I'm going to give him a 10 and uh, and, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because if you go in back and have a look at the polls and it's a remarkable feat to have got to where he's got to in such a short space of time.
0: And you're always going to get errors and things that go wrong and And when you're in the middle of it, you sometimes sit back and you think, how on earth did that happen? That's part of the scrutiny
1: of politics. And by the way, it just never goes away. For as long as you're in that job, you will get it. But has he put National in a position where it's a credible candidate to win the election next year? I think 100%. And if that's the test of a good leader, then I'm giving him a 10. But is the ability to win elections all that the people who decide who wins are looking for? Well, the latest of those opinion polls was just a day away, unveiled by TVNZ's political editor Jessica Much Mackay on Monday's One News. He will be Prime Minister on these numbers, and until now, that hasn't been a viable option. Jessica Much Mackay said that the poll showed the tide was now turning away from Labour and the left, but that the Prime Minister's foreign trips really hadn't helped in that poll. And when Jessica Much Mackay dropped Christopher Luxon's Lunch Money Lewis impression into her report about that poll result... Well, she wasn't making fun of it this time. Are you
0: ready for it? In an extraordinary television moment, National's leader turned musical. And sums up how New Zealanders are feeling across this country. Got bills, I've got to pay. So I'm going to work, work, work every day. That work is paying off. Voters
1: shifting to the centre-right with a big dollop of support from ACT. One News used its augmented reality graphics last Monday night to beam Jessica Much Mackay into the debating chamber in Parliament to show us what it would look like if this had been an actual general election result. But it's just one more poll of 1,000 people simulating the result of an election, which will actually be decided by almost 3 million voters in around 15 or 16 months from now. But by the time RNZ political editor Jane Patterson was called upon to wrap the week's political news on Morning Report's new end-of-week political panel last Friday, it wasn't that TBNZ poll or even the fallout from the revelations about Sam Uffindell that kicked it off.
0: We thought we were going to be talking about the National Party and the terrible week they've had, but um, Labour
1: has uh, had this grenade bo- uh, dropped onto them um, by one of its backbench MPs. There was the MP for Hamilton West, Dr Gaurav Sharma, who wrote a piece in the Herald published on Friday claiming he could have written a couple of books about bullying and coercion in Parliament and even at the top levels of his own party. Dr Sharma penned an explosive column in the Herald yesterday claiming rampant bullying in Parliament that goes all the way to the ninth floor. He didn't cite any specific examples, but on Morning Report, Stuff's political editor Luke Malpass reckoned we'd be hearing much more about the issue soon. Next, next, the next week or so, the the spotlight's really going to be on culture of the parties. Well this past week it's not just the culture of political parties but also the culture in schools and universities that got some of the spotlight after the allegations of misconduct that made headlines. And that's no bad thing because they're bigger issues than poll results, social media gaffes or a party leader's clunky musical choices, things which are not front of mind for many people for long outside of the media. When Christopher Luxon appeared on RNZ's morning report last Wednesday to be questioned for the second morning in a row about his handling of his by now suspended MP Sam Uffendel, the host Guy Nespina read a roll call of the National Party MPs gone rogue over recent years.
0: In this case, uh, as you saw, with the King's uh, College board. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. We're not going to go yeah. all through that, mate. Yeah, put, your, put your talking points down. I want to talk about culture in the National Party, right? Do you, remem- do you remember these MPs? Andrew Falloon? Yes, I do. Yes, I do, Guy, and I know what you're talking about. Hamish Walker? Yes, I do. Jake Bizant? Yes. Aaron Gilmore? Uh, Yes, I, I don't, yep, didn't know him personally, yep. Jamie Lee Ross?
1: Now that was harsh on Christopher Luxon as all of those disgraces were before his time as party leader and he's only even been an MP for a couple of years himself. And Aaron Gilmore is only now known for once asking, don't you know who I am, almost a decade ago. But it's his party now and Guy Espiner told Christopher Luxon the list could have been even
0: longer. But we're also reliant on candidates to be really transparent about their past behaviour as yeah, well. Yeah, but, but that sounds almost farcical when you look at, and I've just named, I've probably left a few out, Well, any
1: that he did leave out will be in the new book, Blue Blood, the inside story of the National Party in Crisis by Stuff reporter Andrea Vance. This covers the National Party after it went into opposition in 2017, right up until the party settling on the current leadership, which has, by and large, settled things down a bit. Though it has been unsettled this past week, and the Blue Blood book covered times when hardly a week went by, or sometimes a day, without more stories and commentary about disunity in the party's ranks and the conduct of some of its eminently unsuitable MPs. And some of the behind-closed-doors stuff wasn't reported at the time. For example, former leader Judith Collins kept the full internal review of the National Party's 2020 election defeat to her own inner circle. But Andrea Vance's Blue Blood spills some of the beans on that alongside further insights from the party's people and staffers, some of whom are anonymous and some of their comments frankly unbroadcastable, as quoted in the book. In the Listener magazine, Daniel McLaughlin called it the story of how the natural party of government failed to govern itself, while reviewer Steve Braunius went so far as to call it National's autopsy report. But the party clearly hasn't actually died, as last weekend's annual conference and this week's positive poll result clearly showed. And on Q&A recently, Andrea Vance herself told the host Jack Tame why what happened then still matters now. There's a real tension between the soul of the National yeah. Party versus are they continue going to continue to be the party of key, which I very much see as a party that exists only to exist in government, to be to hold power. Right. Now, it must have been pretty awkward for the party's people who wanted to put all of that in the past to have it all out there again in her book, but it does raise the question, why would they talk to a reporter who wanted to do all that? But Andrea Vance told the spin-off podcast Gone By Lunchtime, enough times gone by now, that it was actually pretty cathartic for some. In the moment, those people wouldn't have talked to me about the, the things that they said they would never have said at the time, because they didn't know how it was going to play out. Andrew Evans also pointed out that Labour in opposition after 2008 had a pretty similar experience with disunity and revolving door leadership. And earlier this year, that story was told in a five-part podcast called The Wilderness by Lloyd Burr, a former News Hub political reporter who's now a host at Today FM. I think I've performed creditably on the trail, and the feedback that I've had from around the party is that I retain the confidence of the party.
0: He's insistent most of his MPs are flabbergasted, and most of the journalists are wondering what planet he's on. So began a PR campaign of getting to know Andrew Little. Labor produced a candid promo video of him featuring his mother.
1: I, I am who I am. I'm not, I'm not going to be something I'm not. I, I do have a sense about justice and injustice I don't tolerate. Now, the Former Labour Party leader Andrew Little was prepared to tell Lloyd Burr about his rise and fall as leader for that series, but his short-lived predecessors were not, and their time at the top is instead analysed in the wilderness by Lloyd Burr's own political reporting colleagues at the time.
0: On paper, he was really good, he had a good background, he'd been at the UN, he'd had a New Year's honour, um, stuff like that. So he had a lot of potential to be a great leader, but yeah, w- why wasn't he?
1: I think you could probably say that about almost every single leader of the Labour Party over that, that period in opposition as well. On paper, people looked like they were going to be great. Phil Goff, on paper, looked like he was meant to be a Prime Minister, like every every single step that he'd taken. Must be a bit galling for failed political leaders to have the reporters that made their lives so hard at the time doing their retrospectives a decade on. So this week I asked Lloyd Burr, what can we learn from revisiting things that were covered so intensely by the media at the
0: time? There was no real historical record apart from a few things online, a few Wikipedia pages and whatnot. There's been sort of no book on it and I think it was quite an important moment because it was the rise of Ardern kind of weaved throughout the wilderness. You sort of saw Ardern um, either stay quiet, she kind of put her hand up with Grant Robertson initially, and then she was she uh, she just she played a very good game, and then bang, her moment came. So there was that kind of part of it as well. Um, I just wanted a historic record. Is there
1: a danger, though, for r- political reporters to over-dramatise the, the problems within political parties and, and the personalities? I mean, these remain mass movements for all the troubles that they've had They have a national structure, they have finance supporters, all of that sort of thing. And if you go back into the 90s, I mean, whole new parties really broke away from both Labour and the National Party.
0: I don't think there's a danger in dramatising it. And the dramatising only comes from passion, probably, from political reporters, because that's our life. This is what we live. Every single day we're at Parliament and we're living this. And we're living this journey alongside these politicians. And a lot of these politicians, they're leaking stuff to you or they'll tell you stuff off the record or they'll ask you to go for a beer or a whiskey or whatever. They know that they're in opposition for ages until they can sort their stuff out. So they're kind of giving you lots of inside bits. And the story is, has so many different aspects. You've got, you've got personalities going up against each other. You've got people leaking against each other. There's internal feuds. This is our job, is to report on what's going on. And for the most part, it is quite dramatic. Some of the stuff that goes on... Oh, my goodness. Look at Cunliffe's tenure, for example. That was pretty damn dramatic. And he was only leader for, I think, less than a year.
1: Okay. Obviously, when parties are in opposition, they're going to be preoccupied with their own electability because, you know, what's the point in cooking up the world's best policy if you can never get into government? But because of that they have to worry an awful lot about how the reporters like you guys at that time would have been portraying them. Did you ever get the feeling that maybe the intense media focus on the problems of those leaders establishing themselves actually hastened their demise or even made it impossible for them to be able to succeed?
0: I think that's part and parcel of the gig. And that sounds brutal and ruthless, doesn't it? But that's a huge part of your role as opposition is selling yourself and then in turn the party and the policies is selling that to the public. And you do that through the media. If you can't face up and front up to the media and string a sentence together or you can't defend your policies or you can't sell your policies or you can't defend some wrongdoing or some scandal in your party or front up and face up and do it in an articulate way, then maybe you're not the right person for the job. Because we saw that with David Shearer. He's probably the perfect, perfect example for this. He was great on paper, the perfect Labour leader and the perfect Prime Minister on paper, right, given what he's done in his past and his humanitarian work and all of that type of stuff. But get him in front of a camera, get him in front of a group of journalists, he faltered. Success breeds success right but failure also breeds failure and in that case failure did breed failure and then he got over managed and he had his spin doctors and media trainers all came in and they hired media trainers to try and train him to be very good and that just made him worse, it made him overthink it. You know look at Ardern, she's in front of a camera, she's great, she's just herself, she's very articulate, she can do it and she nails it whereas Shira just couldn't do that part of the job and that's kind of a vital part of the job. I mean, you're probably right, we do hasten the demise, but it's probably a demise that was inevitable anyway.
1: But I'll put it another way. I mean, because electability is so important, that did you ever get the feeling that as political reporters, at times you were just kind of analysing the political strategy of those politicians? Like almost you were reporting on a never-ending kind of popularity contest. Um, and in fact, in Andrea Vance's book, you know, she talks about these things that made news in a bad way for the National Party, you know, their MPs doing things that involved them having to resign and so on. And then she'd say, but things stabilised one month later with the Colmar Brunton One News poll that showed their support was actually holding up. I mean, ordinary citizens don't really think that
0: way. Yeah, I think you're right. It kind of was like that. It was kind of like deja vu because you just had leadership contest after leadership contest after leadership contest. It was kind of never-ending. When you're a political reporter and you're in Parliament and you're living and breathing politics you do kind of overthink it and you do put more focus, far more focus than it should really get on these skirmishes and these leadership stouches and all the drama that's going on in the party. You put far more focus on that than it deserves in the public. And now, not being a political reporter, but looking in at politics, you just sort of understand what beltway means putting so much pressure on them, really wanting to get the story. And in the grand scheme of things, I look back down and think, that really wasn't even a story. But when you're in the moment, it is your everything. It's so much more fun to cover some, a, a party that's falling apart than a government that's not. And so that's probably why a lot of the focus was on Labour. They were branding themselves as a government-in-waiting at the election in 2011 and in 2014, yet they weren't. They weren't a government-in-waiting. They were a complete shambles, and so it was important for us to tell that story. Um, and I stand by that, but looking back now, you're like, wow, we we did put a lot of um, coverage into something that probably wouldn't be so important to the general Joe public.
1: Yeah, so if we take one example, for, uh, for, uh, which is in that period that you're talking about, the, the Phil Goff episode, which, there's interesting parts in it where Duncan Garner, your colleague um, from back then, is... And again, your colleague now at Today FM, of course, is talking about interviewing Phil Goff. And he had this policy of the capital gains tax that he wanted to put forward. also um, fruit and vegetables on GST, you know, two things he wanted to go to the election with. And Duncan was saying, well, he was looking down at his papers and I'm telling him, no, no, if you can't tell me without looking at your notes, what's the point of this? And it all seemed quite aggressive. And, you know, we've got a housing crisis, we've got a cost of living crisis. Imagine if, <laughs> if, uh, if capital gains tax had been debated and discussed rather than just being described as something was electorally impossible. GST, you know, he didn't cost the policy. He looked a fool when he tried to talk about it. When you look back, do you think, well, maybe it would have been better if those ideas and things had been a bit more discussed and not just whether it could win or lose someone in the election?
0: Yeah, that aggressive style, I guess, that's just Garner's style. And in a way, that's Patty's style and Tova's style. As well, and you know that's kind of the way that things were at TV Three, and it's a great style, and it's great for the kind of news that you produce. But I, I do stand by what Gun—the point that Gun anyway, is making, anyway—is that if you're going to be a prime minister in waiting, or you want to be the prime minister, and you've got a big game-changing policy that's going to change quite a lot like a capital gains tax. You need to know the fiscal's behind it, and that was the basic premise of that. In terms of the actual policy itself, it doesn't mean that we wouldn't be in the place that we're in at the moment. It might just be a lot less hard than we're in at the moment.
1: When Duncan Garner talked about that incident where you know, he was telling Phil Goff to say, don't look at your notes, talk to me. If you don't know it now, by now, you've got a problem. It kind of brought to mind that guy in the Australian Green Party, I think his name was Adam Bant. Who recently just hit back at a, a guy during the Australian election campaign who was being asked for facts and figures on something and just shouted back at him, i just Google it,
0: mate. You said in the speech that uh, wages growth wasn't going uh, particularly well. What's the current WPI? Well, <laughs> Google it, mate. I mean,. <laughs> Do you
1: think that might come up next year when we have an election? Politicians might be inspired by that when I actually loved quarter.
0: that Green Party exchange from Australia. It was actually pretty good, and I loved how the politician handled it. And Goff could have done exactly the same thing, and New Zealand politicians could use that a lot and fire back at reporters and go, look, I'm not interested in your gotcha. You can try and give me a gotcha question like that and make me look the fool, but I'm interested in the real issues, da 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 How much is a loaf of bread? How much is a bottle of milk. All those kind of gotcha questions. It's like, well, f- you've been Googling New World and Countdown and stuff all morning, so you know. Your job is to give them a prolonged job interview to make sure that they're the right person to run the country. And those kind of gotcha questions are there, but I did, I did love that particular exchange in Australia.
1: Because you were literally uh, an intern at the time when Phil Goff was doing the capital gains tax announcement. I think your, your two senior colleagues, Patrick Gower and Duncan Garner, were uh, encouraging you to hold a piece of paper, which made it look like you had some killer fact or something, just to put him off, off his stride or make him nervous or something. Um, and you, you didn't even quite know why they were asking you to do it.
0: It was the most bizarre induction to Parliament ever. It was I think it was my second day, and I went down there for a bit of a tour around Parliament, and Patty's like, grab a bit of paper, fold it lengthways in half, where's your pen? Grab a pen. All right, come with me. Five paces behind me. All right, come on, and we strut. I just had this big grin on my face, going, "What the heck is going on? Who are these people?" It was Garner and Patty that were just marching around the parliament. So,
1: was that a sort of like they thought they might <laughs> unsettle Phil Goff or get him to say something that they weren't expecting?
0: Oh no, no, no! That that was a tactic to intimidate me.
1: Um, Lloyd, the Blue Blood book by Andrea Vance, she said in that, look, it it was pretty cathartic for some of the former MPs and and the staffers who are less famous names to kind of spill the beans to her on what it was really like behind the scenes in the National Party in recent years. Were, were people on that side of you know the labour experience a little less uh, reticent or didn't quite have the same feeling that some of those expressed to Andrea?
0: The difference between the wilderness and Blue Blood, I guess, is that a lot of the characters in the wilderness are now in government or they are working for government or they are consultants for government or they're working for consultants for the government. And so they didn't want to spill the beans. They didn't want to... Um, brass anyone off? Even, even off the it.
1: record or off yeah, tape? Well,
0: off the record, a few of them spoke and I could use some of that, but when you're doing a podcast it's quite hard to have mm. off the record chat because you need audio, right? <laughs> exactly. So I, I included a lot of that in in my commentary or some of the bits. It's like, you know, staffers off the record told me that this was the worst time or, you know, Cunliffe was the worst leader to work for because he'd change his minds a gilli- gazillion times a day. Maybe for Andrew Little it was cathartic because he was keen as. I think he replied to my request for an interview within sort of half an hour and was like yep i'll do it next time i'm up in auckland i didn't get a response at all from ardern or from david Shearer, so yeah maybe just cathartic for andrew little
1: That was Lloyd Burr, former News Hub political reporter and currently the afternoon host of the talk station Today FM, who made and presented the podcast series The Wilderness, all about the years when the Labour Party suffered from instability, infighting and revolving door leadership, a decade before the National Party began suffering the same things after 2017. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, while TVNZ made huge news of its own political poll this week and that Sam Uffindell controversy, they also had news every day from way beyond the Beltway, in fact from as far away as the Bullring of Birmingham. All right, to today's other big story, and they've done it, way to go team. Yes, the gold rush has continued at the Commonwealth Games, now our most successful ever. And it's Golden Gate, the man with the mullet, cyclist Aaron Gate with four golds. And while TBNZ Simon Dallow kept his own excitement pretty much under control there, his colleagues on the breakfast show were pumped up as a record number of medals came in each morning in real time.
0: <laughs> Thanks, j mate. We'll catch up with you a little bit later on. God, haven't we do- been doing well? Oh, I know. Every I- time, I, my push notifications, I just keep going. Whoa, another one! Another one, totally!
1: Aaron Gate, three medals, out the gate. Now, usually, Kiwis winning the mixed double squash somewhere in the world would barely make a sports bulletin, but other major TV networks had sent news teams to Birmingham, and Prime TV screened the highlights every day free to air, while also telling their viewers what they could see live across many, many channels if they paid to subscribe to its owner, Sky TV. Scoop's Gordon Campbell said that all this was, as ever, sports-based nationalism to deliver audience to advertisers, but given all the bad news these days, that's the spirit. But even before the gold rush of Kiwi medals in Birmingham, Gordon Campbell had predicted the top spots would be dominated by the richer Commonwealth nations like England, Australia, Canada and us because they pump more money into elite sport than ever. And that made the medals table a mirror for the impact that colonialisation had had on the relative wealth of all the nations taking part, said Gordon Campbell, who also pointed to satirist John Oliver, who was asking two Commonwealth Games ago, how is this thing of the colonial past still a thing today. Well, imagine the Olympics without
0: the United States, China and Russia. Then imagine a track meet dominated by sprinters from Wales. Wales! And you have the Commonwealth Games.
1: And the US-based Brit also reckoned that the Games were not really about the winners, but about the biggest loser at the heart of the Commonwealth.
0: So tonight, we salute this week's Commonwealth Games. The historic display of a once mighty nation gathering together the countries it lost and finding a way to lose to them once more. How is this still a thing?
1: However, on Newstalk ZB this week, James McConey from the Prime TV show The Crowd Goes Wild backed what Gordon Campbell had dismissed as the $2 shop Olympics.
0: I don't care that they're not the Olympics, and what some people say. It actually doesn't matter and it actually pre- prepares our athletes for the Olympics because if you're doing athletics around New Zealand, the people who are watching you are a bunch of marshals, a guy with a tape measure and, and your family. And now you've actually got a, a crowd of 40,000 screaming at you and you can get used to what it's like to be, to perform in the quadrant.
1: And elsewhere on News Talk ZB, breakfast host Mike Hosking loved the way that we were punching above our weight in Birmingham against the bigger British Commonwealth nations. It's gold! <laughs> Medal Hall tells you all you need to know. Yes, participating's fun, but we celebrate medals not turning up. I was watching some British television, and it said Ireland are stoked that they've won a record-breaking five or six golds. And if you look at a country like Ireland, which has got, a, from memory, the same population as us... It puts mm. our performance into some standing. At 19 golds or whatever it is, we've done brilliantly, brilliantly well. And Mike Hoskins' guest, TVNZ sports reporter Guy Havelt, was also proud of that. Yeah, I was thinking that today, actually. I think it is quite remarkable that a, that a country of five million can, can do what New Zealand's been doing. And yes, a nation like Ireland would be a pretty decent benchmark for our success at the Commonwealth Games if they'd been taking part. Ireland of course is not a part of the British Commonwealth and history records they were pretty determined not to be shedding blood to boot the British out finally about 100 years ago. now That led to the partition that created the independent Republic of Ireland population 5 million today and Northern Ireland which remains a part of the UK and as such does compete in the Commonwealth Games but it only represents 1.8 million people. Now, The same day Mike Hosking got mixed up about that Team Northern Ireland's boxers won five more gold medals, and that meant that Northern Ireland actually ended up punching just a shade above our weight, literally and statistically, taking home one medal for just under every 100,000 of their citizens, while our team got one medal for about 105,000 of us. Well, that's all we have for you on Media Watch this weekend, though we'll be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show. And then back with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.